Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. All right, happy church. It's that time to get started. All right, I welcome you back to your seats. We are picking up where we left off. Matthew chapter 14 in the middle there. That's what we do if you're new to the church. We go verse by verse through the scriptures, chapter by chapter. Don't want to miss anything good. That way we exposit the word of God. We let the word of God lead us to Uh, where God wants us to be and to understand so that we might better serve him. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, as we pick up here the most beautiful passage with a wonderful miracle of Jesus breaking the bread and feeding thousands and thousands of hungry people, Father, we are in this story. It is you who came with a heart filled with love to satisfy not only our longings, but to give us what we really need, eternal life, no fear of death, forgiveness of sins, and a right relationship with our Father in heaven. So thank you, God. Show us these wonderful things and encourage our hearts, we pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So when something Jesus does or says is recorded in all four Gospels, you know God is saying, pay special attention because this is important. And this passage of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, uh, they appear, this story appears in all four Gospel accounts. It's in here, of course, Matthew 14, where we're about to turn. And Mark 6 and Luke 9 and John 6 as well. Everybody has that story included because it's really a sermon illustration about what Jesus came to do in the gospel. In fact, all miracles are not just for the miracle itself. Jesus does miracles to teach us something about the nature of God, about the nature of man and our great need The essence of the gospel that gives us eternal life can be seen in these miracles. And in this one, the feeding of 5,000, we see the compassion of Christ. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son to be an offering for our sins that we might have life. And so this miracle is all about what Jesus came to do and offer himself and perfectly fits for communion Sunday. I don't know how God always lines that up so perfectly. And so let's get started and read this well-known passage uh, with uh, new eyes 
that God gives us every time we open his word. And so here we go, picking up at verse 13. It's projected there for you. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately for some alone time to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot around the lake there. Verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples come to him and they say, Lord, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away. Let's get rid of these people so they can go off and get food, buy something to eat. Verse 16, Jesus replies, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two little fish. They answer, bring them here to me, he said. Verse 19, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. That's how ministry works. Verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces, one for each one of them, I suppose. Verse 21, and the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, Scholars say you can triple or quadruple that number, counting the gals and the kids. And so uh, there you have it. Let's get situated here. I want to show you a couple of things. First of all, what's going on with a map here? The Sea of Galilee It's really a freshwater lake, right? And it's about the size of Lake Tahoe. It is 13 miles long and seven miles wide. And so what's going on in your text, Just they, Jesus does 80% of his miracles and teaching there at Capernaum, his home base. And so they get into a boat, right? He wants some alone time. <laughs> and so uh, they, they go out not very far from shore, this week, and that's the reason the crowd can see where they're going because they're up above and uh, they're not far off in the distance. And they cut across over to the other side there of the bay and now they're in Bethsaida. John tells us the name of the town. And uh, let me just show, oh, by the way, when we go to Israel, we stay at a hotel right on the water, right here. And so it's just wonderful. We are talking about going next year. Uh, we may all end up in Israel sooner than that. <laughs> the, way, the way it appears, the new Jerusalem is not far off. And so, yeah, with that said, uh, let me show you a picture of how it looks today. And amazing that the plains of Bethsaida, where the explosion of the bread and the fish happened on these plains, that still seems like a remote place, as the Bible called it. They're kind of 
barren. It's still sort of like that. And you can imagine in your mind's eye when we're talking about this great miracle, this very place, because that's exactly where it happened. And so thank you for that slide. Let me tell you how we're going to attack this passage. It divides quite nicely, as I like to say, into three bite-sized pieces. (laughs) Bite-sized bread. (laughs) You guys, whatever. I'll try another one. Ready? This is a joke, so get ready. (laughs) This passage is packed to the gills (laughs) with with insights. Come on, it is true. Three things to see here, all right, as we walk through. That's what we do. We put up the Word of God. We walk through it and apply it. I mean, it's not rocket science. And so three things to see. Number one, Jesus has compassion. Number two, the disciples have issues, as we often do, those who follow. And the crowd, what do they have? They have a full tummy. They are fully satisfied in the motto uh, of the story, or the moral of the story, I should say, is, is that blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, a right relationship with God, because they shall be satisfied. And the word there in the Greek means to be packed full of this abundant life, not just for the here and now, but for where it really counts is when your heartbeat ceases, you will be alive and well in the presence of the one who made you. Amen? And so that is where we're headed now. And so we are going to dive in here to the first point the great love of God, and that's what's prompting everything Jesus does is prompted out of love and compassion. And so we take a look at that. Here's the verses here for point one. And I like to elaborate, you know, as we walk through, we just read it. So I just say it in a different way to kind of bring another layer of understanding. Verse 13, so when Jesus heard what had happened, now catch this because most sermons I hear that start with this they go back to what just happened. Well, what just happened didn't really just happen. What just happened is a flashback of how John the Baptist died, that gruesome birthday party where John was beheaded. That's what just happened, but only now we're picking back up the story, so Matthew is going back to the first part of the chapter. And so what just happened isn't John just died. John was already dead. So he's saying what just happened is Herod has heard about Jesus and he's all stirred up and riled up and sort of on the warpath. And that's why Jesus says time to isolate a little, time to pull back, and I'll explain why. But that's what's going on here. So they withdraw by boat privately to a solitary place here and... um, So picking up there, Jesus hears that King Herod was being uh, riled up, and so they are intending to to lay low in a less populated area. Luke called it out as Bethsaida. And uh, the crowds catch on, and they follow him on foot around the lake there. So when Jesus lands, he sees a large crowd there, and he has compassion on them and heals their sick. 
uh, Mark tells us that he taught them also many things. And so he's in full ministry mode when he gets out of that boat. And then on top of all of that, doing miraculous healings and speaking as the unfiltered voice, audible God speaking, because Jesus is fully God in a human body. And so on top of that, he's going to multiply the fish and the bread to feed well over 10,000 people. So a great um, passage indeed. So first he withdraws. What's up with that? Well, it's not cowardice. Jesus is the son of God. He's not afraid of anybody. It's all about timing. He came to die, right? But it will be his time and his way, right? Because it's been prophesied. You know, Jesus wasn't killed for his good work. It was his good work to be killed. He came to lay down his life as an offering, a sin offering for us. And so, yeah, he pulls back on the throttle a little bit and says, you know, uh, we are going to an isolated place. Well, that can work really to discourage the Sadducees and the Pharisees and maybe King Herod from pursuing in these hard-to-get-at regions, but it's not going to stop the crowds. There's no way. And, and why, why, why would we expect the crowds wouldn't run around the lake? And by the way, it was about five miles. It's like from here to Costco. That's how far they ran, right? And uh, yeah. And, you know, it was for more than just the free samples at Costco, <laughs> motivating them. <laughs> I mean, Brad, come on. I mean, they didn't even know what was going on, but they knew Jesus was in the mood for healing, and that's what they really were after. And so, yeah, there were the crowds. The Bible says crowds of crowds. That's how they describe how large the crowd is. And of course, like I said, they're hearing the voice of God completely, 100%, without a filter, (laughs) 100%. And in fact, in Luke chapter 19, they're stunned by the authority. He doesn't teach like a regular rabbi or a prophet or a holy man because he's God in a human form. And so he's speaking with great authority, which stunned them. And it says, quote, Luke 19, all the people hung on his every word, right? So much so that the Pharisees had a hard time setting them up to be executed because the people uh, were in love with him there. It was seasonal. Of course, it flipped there at the end. But yeah, combine that, his words with the lame walking and the blind seeing and the dead being raised, it makes sense that the crowds would follow him like that. And so uh, they're in the boat and they row their boat ashore. Hallelujah, right? Now, which made me stop to think about that song. Michael, row your boat ashore, hallelujah. You know what the world, the world is so lost. The world was thinking that it's Michael the archangel that gets in a boat and crosses the river Jordan of death, and then Michael escorts us over rowing the boat ashore, hallelujah, to heaven. It's like the saying, you know, when I get to the gates, the pearly gates, and Peter says to me, you know what, I just, this is all I have to say. Read the Bible. Just open up the book. It's very easy. It's not about Peter or Michael. It's about Jesus. 
And you could sing Jesus rowing your boat ashore, hallelujah, in this case, if you understood it. And so what was his reaction? Well, the disciples, but for the grace of God, we would hear them what they would be muttering because Jesus says, let's take a break. We're tired. We're exhausted. Uh, we'll get a little R&R. So they're, they're hoping for less work because people are work for Jesus is serving and they're serving people, right? So they're, they're not happy to see them. They're rolling their eyes. They would say, hey, listen, God loves you, but it's the, it's the wrong time. It's the wrong place. You're going to have to run along here. Well, you know, they hold off saying that, but they end up saying that. And their true feelings do come out toward the evening time, and that's always the case. You can fake it only so long, and then your true motives are outed, you know? So there's no scowl on the Savior's face when he sees the crowd has kind of figured out where they would be and kind of beat them to the place. They're running along the shore. And so, and there's that word. He meets them not with... uh, closed arms, but with open hospitality and the word compassion. Now, that word in the Greek is really a Jesus word only. Only Jesus is described as splanknizomai. It means to tear the gut. So Jesus sees them, and he's torn up. What's he torn up about? John chapter 6 version lets us know. He says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered and hurting. And the shepherds who were there tending to them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, had made Judaism into a nightmare, a joke. The Sabbath was something you you dreaded. You didn't want to wake up because there were so many burdens and laws and limitations and restrictions and rules. That's what it was. You better work your way to heaven. That's what kind of shepherds they had. In fact, I'll show you a verse in Ezekiel that talks about the false shepherds, Ezekiel 34. The Lord's message came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the pastors, the religious leaders of God's people, woe to the shepherds of God's people who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? And he goes on there to say, you have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays. Hello, this is what ministry is about. Or sought the lost, but with harshness you have ruled over them. They were scattered because they had no shepherd, and they became food for every wild beast. My sheep wandered all over the earth, the mountains. My sheep were scattered over the entire face of the planet with no one looking or searching for them. And so he's going to go on and say, but I'll rescue them. I'm their shepherd. I'm going to show up on the scene. And so what moves Jesus the most is 700 years after he said those words, because he's the Lord, he is now as the good shepherd, standing in the midst of a plain with thousands of lost sheep in fulfillment of Isaiah's word there, Ezekiel's word there. And so his heart is torn up because they've got that look on their face like, where do we go for a little comfort, for a little hope? We don't even know the love of God. 
We don't know the plan of God. We don't have any assurance for our souls. And Jesus' heart was torn up. And so he starts healing them and teaching words of life, alleviating their suffering. And the compassion of God explodes on the plains there. And uh, wouldn't that be awesome to be there? But listen, you will be there and your God, the shepherd of us, his sheep, will be among us. He will be our God. We are his people. And he will wipe away every tear with his own hand and you will see him for he will reign visibly upon a throne and he will dwell with us and us with him forevermore. That day, and what Jesus is about to do there is going to assure that that will be the case. He's going to remedy the problem of our estrangement and the lostness of his people through his own death on our behalf, the sinless one who knew no sin. He's God. He's fully human. He's born of a woman, but he's conceived of God himself, the Holy Spirit. He's the incarnation. God poured himself into a human womb and out came the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. And there he stands, exploding the bread from heaven. How did that even happen? You know, I mean, they keep pulling the bread out of the basket and they're like, where's the bottom? There is no bottom. It's the Lord. And so we continue on. My paraphrase there, verse 15. The sun's going down and it's probably Peter leading the company, right? And uh, they start complaining and whining. Lord, we're out in the sticks. We're out in the boondocks, man. Well, I'm sure the Lord appreciated the location update, you know, letting him know where we are, right? Hey, we're out. This is a really barren area, Lord, and it's beginning to get dark. It's time. It's in command mode. It's time for you to send them away so that they can get some food. Come on. We're hungry, we're frustrated, we're tired. The sun's going down. Chop, chop, Lord, get busy. <laughs> Do something. That's what he's saying. Well, you know, and Jesus didn't, you know, make them disappear. He could have, right? Instead, Jesus responded, um, I don't need to do any such thing. They don't need to go away, but here's what you can do. How about you give them something to eat? Now, I just think his facial expression there is enough to know that he's going to do a miracle. Hey, why don't we give him something to eat? You know, wiggling his eyebrows a little <laughs> bit. Like, you know, you know, have you seen a few miracles like the ones I just did 15 minutes ago? All right, verse 17. But we only have five little barley buns. You know the Hawaiian bread? You know, that has that, it's delicious, by the way. You know, it comes in little buns. That's what a loaf is. They're not loaves. They're little buns of barley, the poor man's food. And two little fish, it's a kid's lunch, as we find out, thanks to Andrew. Uh, two little sardines. And they're like, are you kidding me? Come on. And Jesus says, bring them to me. Give the little that you have to me, and let's see what I can do with your little fishies. All right. So Jesus has compassion, check. Number two, his 
closest followers have issues. And that's what's going on. Issue number one, you don't tell God what to do. You just don't do it. There's a whole movement that loves to do that. They claim everything. This is what you should do. This is the problem, and here's what you will do. And we claim it. Done. Wow. No. God does not appreciate that. He thinks of himself as the master (laughs) and us the servant. That's in his head anyway. And so you don't give orders. You just tell them, but that's what we do. We start to feel a pinch. We're hangry, right? We're hungry and frustrated. (laughs) And the sun's going down and the resources are few. And so we start telling God what to do. Hey, it's getting late here. Hello, check the bank account. Just checked it online. Uh, You need to get busy, God. And it's like, oh, really? Okay. Well, that's not what we do. We need an attitude adjustment. The way, Listen to how you pray. I listen to how I pray all the time after I was in Japan as a missionary. I'm in a prayer group, and I'm being translated. And the guy keeps using the word dozo and onagashimasu, which means please. Now, I knew that much. I know the word for please. But what struck me was that in my praying, I wasn't saying please ever. I was just praying the way we pray. I wasn't saying please, thank you, and please, and please. There's so many ways to say please in Japanese too, right? There's, <laughs> this little, there, it's complicated. But they're polite, and nobody would ever dream of telling Jesus what to do, but ask him humbly, with a dozo yoroshiku onogashimasu. Right, And so, yeah, I pay attention. We should pay attention to how we talk to God. And the second problem here is their attitude, you, you know? Send them away. And he's like, really? Is that what I do with people when it's inconvenient? Have you noticed I'm other-centered? That the attitude, my attitude, which you should have, is to consider others more important than yourself, Philippians 2, 3. He says, have the same mindset as Christ, who, even though he was God, didn't consider equality with God something to take advantage of, but laid that fact down and took the form of a humble servant. And and so Mark 10, 45 The Son of Man, Christ speaking, didn't come to be served, but to serve. And his disciples, you know, it's hard to catch on. They could have asked or this. They could have said, hey, it's dinner time. It's getting late. You know what, Lord? We remember the wedding. They ran out of wine. I mean, you could do the same thing here. You could just spread a feast in the wilderness. What do you want us to do? Or they could have said, Lord, we were reading in our devotions this morning <laughs> about Elijah needing food, and you, you supplied for him, God, you know. Uh, the widow ran out of rations in 2 Kings uh, 4, and she had all the oil she ever dreamed of. Uh, they needed water in the wilderness, and so, God, you brought water from a rock, Numbers chapter 20. Uh, They got tired of eating manna, and so they complained and said, we need some protein, animal protein. And so God said, I got quail, and he brought in the quail. Exodus 16, 
There's even a multiplication of loaves in the Old Testament with Elisha. You'll recall that a man brought 20 loaves for 100 guys. And they, they were like, oh, this can't feed everybody. And Elisha said, watch this. And there was a multiplication of loaves in the Old Testament pointing to the real multiplication of the bread of heaven. And so they don't think like believers. They think like unbelievers, right? In fact, Jesus is testing them. In John chapter 6, he, he will ask Philip, John tells us, how can we fix this? How, how can we remedy this? They come and say, we're running out of daylight and they're all hungry and what do we do? And, 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 and Jesus says, Philip, what do you think? Right? And John says, by the way, he fully knew what he was going to do. Jesus did. He said this to test Philip, and I think that's what he does to disciples. You know, we're like, uh, we're running out of daylight and the needs, and what am I going to do here? And I, I, I don't have enough for this thing. And I'm not talking about money. And he says to us, I don't know how we're going to fix this. And then he watches. What do you think? I mean, they got God standing there. They know this. They've seen him raise the dead, right? They've got God there, and they're acting as if God's not in the equation. When God says, "What do you think? We, how do you think we can solve this problem? What do you think? You just saw me open the eyes of somebody born blind, and then what is Philip going to say? Is he going to go to God in faith, or is he going to go the secular way as if there's no God? And he, that's what he does. He says, uh, 200 denarii. We need $20,000, we would need eight months' wages. We need a whole year of salary. So his mind goes there. But he's, Jesus was testing him. Are you going to ask me? Have you been paying attention to two years of miracles in front of your very eyes? And, and you won't at least first ask me or say, hey, Lord, I think you can. But no. And Andrew is, well, bringing up the fish. Two little sardines. But what's this? What's going to happen with this, you know? And Jesus will ask you, how do you think we could fix this marriage? Where does your first thought, he wants the first thought, God, do a miracle. You're, yeah, I believe, I say I believe that with God all things are possible. You can renew my life. You can restore our love. You can teach me how I contribute to this problem. You can turn things around. Let's start with you, God. And he's going to say, you know, how do you think we're going to make this financial need? How, how are we going to get through this whole crazy time in this world? And then he waits. Well, you know, we can get an extra job or we can, well, you might have to do that. But he just says, come to me first. You have not because you asked not. And they didn't ask, you know, but thank goodness uh, God still will come through. Uh, let me say this. At the beginning of this struggle back in March, when the church was not allowed to meet, there was an offer from the government for loans. A lot of churches took them. And a lot of people, pastors including, uh, were opening themselves up to receive the loan to make payment to provide for the income of lost wages since we couldn't meet. And so there was somebody who didn't go, doesn't go to this church who was saying, it would be so foolish of you to, to not take the loan because it's forgiven. If you don't let anybody go, they'll forgive the loan. And the first scripture that came to mind, I think 
I sent it over was about Egypt. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots. Oh, don't worry, we got the chariots. <laughs> and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. So, so as the pressure came on me, you better take the money. How are you going to pay everybody? Nobody's meeting. There are no offerings. We're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> this scripture came to mind. Yes. Nobody at our church was saying that. None of the guys. So I went into Pastor Adam's office, and this is how God confirmed to me not to do it. I went in with this thought, and I said, hey, Adam, I, I don't have a piece about that whole government loan thing because, you know, and then he said, because of the Egypt thing? <laughs> I was like, done, Jack. <laughs> I mean, I, he finished my sentence about that, and I am so happy to say to you that the next month, giving was up. The next month, giving was up. The next month, giving was up. Giving is up. Attendance is up. The church is healthy. And why? Because we first look to God. God is the one. It's his church. It's his church. Somebody came to me and said, Pastor Ross, I appreciate your honesty, but you should never tell the church giving is up. Because people was like, well, if giving is up. And I said, no, you don't understand these people. You don't understand. They like to give because they are blessed. Those who give receive. That's how it goes. And so that's the point here. They have zero faith. That may be a pinch, of course, um, when he says, why don't you give them uh, food with his eyes dancing like, hey, let's do this. They, they, they should have said, let's do this. We're in. How, what do you want us to do? Tell us. You know. So in short, followers have issues. You know, uh, we, we, we don't have enough love for others, but we have too much love for ourselves. We don't have enough faith in God, toward God, but we have too much faith in our own Cells and our own resources. And so thankfully the story doesn't end there. Let's finish up and then we're going to eat the bread. All right, so let's take a look at this. Verse 19, Jesus starts giving the happy orders. Now Jesus is calling out the orders and it's in command form. I just love it when he takes over like that because good things are going to happen. And he says, have everybody sit down. In other words... We're going to have a banquet here. I want people to enjoy this. Everybody sit down and relax. And then John says, in orderly form, I want groups of 50s and 100s. Right? Because God, when we worship him, when we deal with him, when we do anything in ministry with God, he likes things decent and in order. He's an orderly God. And so he, going on here, he takes the sack lunch and he looks toward heaven and he asks the blessing. He probably said something like this. So we read it to you, the blessing in Hebrew. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha-olam ha-motzi lachem min ha-aretz. It means, blessed are you, Adonai, our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. My father, of course, the Jew, learned that. 
because they say it over every meal. In fact, my dad could sing it, but we never did, and uh, because we ate pork chops. <laughs> so <laughs> as Jews, <laughs> you're not supposed to eat pork chops, so it would be kind of weird to be singing the uh, hamotzi, which is, that's what that's called, and down a BLT. Now, <clears throat> moving on. Now, the point of the passage, so many sermons are like, the whole point of the passage is we only have a little, but when you put your little in the hands of God, uh, yeah, he can uh, make a lot, right? But that's not, that, that's just such a minor point. You need that ending. You need the big shebang. The, you need the gospel. And, and really, uh, so the crowd is going to have a full tummy and they're going to get the lesson of a lifetime if only they can understand it. Uh, one writer did say this, isn't it a relief to know that our Lord can still use us in spite of our flawed character and our feeble faith. You see, because he still says, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to involve you anyway, even though you couldn't get it, and you should have gotten it. But you, you know what? My work is going to prevail in you, through you. That's what he says. It's the gospel. And so what is the big point then? Well, why don't we have the worship team come up because we'll, we'll, I'll teach through this point with them on the platform and then we will take communion together, all right? Because that's really the point. And, and if you've been around church for any amount of time, you, you saw him take the bread and break it, give thanks, come on. And you know that he's called the bread of heaven and you're putting the pieces together there. So it turns out, folks, that this miracle is indeed a sermon illustration for a sermon he will preach the next day. And John chapter 6 has us leaving the scene of the, of the bread and the fish, and then the very next day, he's in the synagogue giving a sermon entitled, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven to give my life as a ransom to be consumed by faith to receive into our hearts. And so, yeah, so the next day he starts the sermon, but uh, first of all, they begin the conversation with this. They come out of breath and they're asking him, hey, Rabbi, we noticed that you put the disciples in the boat and you left yesterday, but you weren't in the boat. So how did you get here? And then Jesus ignores all of that and cuts to the chase and says, truly, truly, I tell you why you're hunting me down. It's because you want the bread again. You're not interested in anything spiritual. You don't want to know about how to get to heaven, have your sins forgiven. All you want is for temporary food. He says, I'll tell you what, stop spending so much of your time and effort for temporary stuff that spoils, but work for the food that will give you eternal life, the food I'll give you. And then they, they're so clever. They say, okay, fair enough. They say, but you know, it is biblical for you to produce some bread right now. And they quote the Psalms, 
they quote Psalm 78, 24 in this very conversation. And they say, because it's written in the Psalm, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So he, they're using the scriptures. He just said, I'm not going to do it. I, I want you to stop chasing me down for the bread, the bread, the bread. I want you to chase me down for the bread of heaven for eternal life so you can have a relationship with God and not go to hell. That's what you should be chasing me down for. And they say, okay, okay. But you know, it does say in the Psalms that you should be giving us the bread. Make the bread. That's what they want. Make the bread. And Jesus is like, silly rabbits, I am the bread. I am the bread. So he goes on in John 6, and I'll sum up his sermon there because it's unbelievable. He goes on to say, the manna you're talking about, it was temporary, man. It's food that goes in your mouth and keeps your body alive. But the bread that I'm talking about, the bread that I got your attention and did the sermon illustration, oh, there's a better bread. There's a higher bread. That if a man or a woman eats this bread, opens their heart, receive Christ and the work he did on the cross, that's the bread, they will never die. That's amazing. Hey, you know, I've got that, John 6. Let me see if that's up there on the screen. This is part of the sermon. The next day, Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. I'll satisfy your needs. You've got a God-shaped hole in your heart. <laughs> and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. But here's the bread here. Here's the bread that comes down from heaven. And, and that threw them for a loop. They said, how can you keep saying you came down from heaven when we know your family, we know your brothers and sisters, and they named them. We know James, we, we know Jude, we know your brothers. What you keep saying you came down from heaven for? Your ancestors ate, they died, but here's the bread that came down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I'm that living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And so they're all bent out of shape. <clears throat> How can you give us your body to eat? He's talking spiritually. He's saying you, you can't just know this to be saved. What I do, me, and the work on the cross, the blood that I shed, the broken body, all of that has to be consumed inside to nourish your soul. On the inside, just like food goes on the inside, this has got to go in through faith into your heart. When you open and receive the Holy Spirit, you receive Christ and the work that he did on the cross. It has to enter. And look at this. I love this. Come on. Did you catch this? The self-proclaimed bread of heaven. He says, the bread of heaven, me, came down from heaven. Where does he land? Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean? House of bread. So he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of heaven. I came down. And where did, where did I land? In the house of bread. And where did they lay me? In a feeder. The word manger means to eat. It means literally. The word literally means to eat or to feed upon. So the, he says, I'm the bread of heaven. I came down into the house of bread and laid in a to eat, to feed upon. Do you get the message? Man couldn't have put this together. God says, I'm the answer. And check this one last thing out. How did we die in the first place? We ate 
from a tree he forbid us to eat from. And we died in Adam, in Eve. And now there's a new tree. The cross is nicknamed in the Bible as the tree. And now there's a fruit on the tree, the death, the broken, battered body of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And he says, you eat now. Now I want you to eat in obedience to reverse the curse. You ate in disobedience. Now I want you to eat in obedience and live. Now you see, eat of the tree of life, which paradoxically is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. But see, if your sins are paid for and you already died, you can't pay for sins anymore because they're paid for. That's why he says it is finished. And did you know that's an accounting term? It's an accounting term. They would, the, the, the word that he uses there, it is finished. It was stamped on bills paid in full. And that's the good news. He's the bread. And so it's, that's what communion's about. The bread stands for his broken body. The wine stands for his blood of the new covenant. So the ushers are going to come forward. And we're going to receive. And um, if you are a born-again Christian, you're welcome to take the bread and the cup are together. And now in this day and age, <laughs> you have to unseal the little packet to get the, the bread. All right? And so hold on to that and get ready. We're going to sing a worship song in between. If you're not a Christian, there's no sense in taking this because it doesn't have any magic power. But if you want to go to heaven and have your sins forgiven and you believe in God, you, you can bow your head, ask him to wash away your sins, to be your Lord, to save you, and then take communion because it, it will have meaning then. All communion is saying is what Jesus did on that cross is now taken into my heart and it gives me spiritual life everlasting. That's the point. Okay, let's pray together. Father, prepare our hearts now for communion. Help us, Father God, to apply the simple faith that can rest in your love that you did all the heavy lifting. God, we couldn't be good enough to get to heaven, but you were good for us. So help us to rest in in that beautiful fact. And it's all up to you. We just simply have to trust. Thank you for this communion service, which encourages our heart, shows us our great value to you, that you would lay down your life for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.